The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Greetings, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis In Tune. We're going to go right to our guest, who is an education writer and author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. She also co-authored The Writing Revolution, A Guide to Advancing Thinking Through Writing in All Subjects and Grades. She's uh, written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and other publications, appeared on numerous TV and radio shows, holds a bachelor's degree from Harvard University, a master's from the University of Sussex, and a doctor of jurisprudence from the University of Pennsylvania, where she has worked as a reporter, a Supreme Court law clerk, a lawyer, and a legal historian. She also has also has authored three novels and lives in Washington, D.C. We'd like to welcome Natalie Wexler to St. Louis in Tune. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Natalie, this is a, a very interesting topic to me. I have a background in education as a teacher, principal, central office administrator. I've taught some university classes, still have some doctoral students that I advise. And this whole subject of the knowledge gap, and for folks, I want to kind of preempt this a little bit. It's often been called the achievement gap. It's been called the opportunity gap. No matter what you call it, there's a gap there, and that gap exists between what I'm going to call students who have, it's generally white students, male and female, and the differences between uh, students who are of color and students who are of lower socioeconomic status and students who receive special education services. That's the gap between in standardized testing. So I want to lay that out on the table because, Natalie, you came about this topic uh, and, and you're calling it the knowledge gap. Please explain that a little bit to us. Yeah, um, well, it is a play on the achievement gap or whatever you want to call it, I mean, which is primarily a gap in test scores and other educational outcomes. Um, but, you know, we look at this gap in test scores as a gap in skills, um, and that's what schools have really been working on to try to bring up those test scores to narrow the gap, bring up scores for all students, because, I mean, they're even overall, our average is nothing to boast about. Only about a third of students test proficient or above on national tests in reading. Um, but what I stumbled upon, really, and, and I was not the first to discover this, is what we've been looking at as a gap in skills is fundamentally a gap in the knowledge that kids are bringing to those tests. Um, you know, the reading tests that kids get, um, which have become so important, they're not related to anything that kids might have learned in school. In fact, they're designed not to be. They're, they're supposed to be testing these these skills, comprehension skills, like finding the main idea or making inferences. So they'll choose topics that they feel kids will sort of have picked up from their general knowledge. But there is a big gap in the general knowledge that kids bring to those tests. Um, and it's really, you know, it, it certainly is, shows up as a, an income-based gap or race-based gap. But really what it's about is how highly educated your your family is and how much knowledge and sophisticated knowledge and sort of academic vocabulary you've been able to pick up at home. If you've got enough of it, you'll be able to read and understand those passages on the test. 
which assume that you'll know certain words and certain concepts. But if you don't know enough of those words and concepts, then you won't have a chance to demonstrate your skills because you don't, you don't know what the passage is trying to say. So a lot of our instruction that's been designed to, to narrow that gap, we've really been shooting ourselves in the foot because we've been focusing on just having kids read sort of disconnected passages and, and work on their supposed comprehension skills. And in fact, cognitive scientists have known for a long time now, for decades, that the most important factor in comprehension is not sort of general skill or general reading comprehension ability, but how much knowledge the reader has about the specific topic he or she is reading about. Boy, I can see that. Yeah, and you can, you can see how uh, individuals from different backgrounds, even from different parts of the country, people who come in to the country and whose language is uh, not English, and how they're going to struggle, especially if this knowledge base is is not really put at the forefront. So you go into this, and what I found was interesting is it, is it resonated with me and, and really kind of rekindled some fire in me. Because this is a conversation for teachers, for principals, central office types, board of education members, and parents, and frankly, even students, because if they understand what's going on here. Because the rap on this is that, well, this is just going to be memorization. So how do you, how do you refute that, Natalie? Yeah, I just came across uh, an interview with um, an, uh, an education expert saying that, you know, the problem is we've just got too much, you know, drilling on information. And it's really, with, when it comes to these reading tests, nothing could be further from the truth because there's no particular body of information that the tests cover. Teachers, students cannot predict what knowledge, what information they're going to need to have to do well on these tests. And the interpretation has been that the, the way to prepare kids for tests, since you don't know what information they're going to be drawing on, is to drill them in these skills. But, you know, you can get really good at finding the main idea about whatever, sea mammals, <laughs> but then you, you come to the test and it's about a topic you know nothing about, like Amelia Earhart or the Inuit, you know, and then you don't have that vocabulary or the, the, the knowledge that will enable you to find the main idea. So it is not that I've been in a lot of elementary school classrooms, talked to a lot, and it's mostly, this is, we're mostly talking elementary and to a large extent actually middle school. These te- the tests go from third to eighth grade and once in high school, but um, by the time kids get to high school, we can talk about that later, they, there is content in the curriculum, but often what's been happening in elementary and middle school is topics, subjects like social studies and science that really could build the kind of knowledge kids need for, their, for reading comprehension. They've been pushed aside, sometimes completely eliminated, to make more time for this practice, not in memorizing information, but in supposedly honing these largely illusory comprehension skills. And it has been a focus on the skills because the, the thought is, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, that if you learn how to read, then you can read to learn. And so you need these skills to be able to identify how to be able to grab hold of future content, and thus you will know how to read. Yeah, I mean, that has been the mantra um, until th- through third grade, kids are learning to read, and then from fourth grade on, the, the idea is they will read to learn. They will acquire knowledge through their reading. 
Well, there are a couple of problems, and there's, there's some truth to that. I mean, um, you do at a certain point. There are two basic aspects of reading, I should say, uh, that, that really that needs to be clarified. There's this, the decoding of words or sounding out words, and obviously you need to learn how to do that in, in order to read. And then there's comprehension, and what I focus on is mostly comprehension. But we have a lot of problems in this country with decoding, and it is true you have to, you know, that is crucial for kids to learn in the early elementary years, as, and it's best taught systematically through phonics, and we have a lot of problems with that in this country. A lot of kids end up in fourth grade, fifth grade, and even high school without being good decoders because they haven't, because it's not the teacher's fault. Teachers haven't been trained how to teach decoding well. On the comprehension side, they 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 feel that they're teaching comprehension through these skills. But what's overlooked in that reading to learn first and then learning, I mean, learning to read first and then reading to learn is that part of learning to read is acquiring the kind of knowledge and vocabulary that will enable you to understand what you read, you know, later on. And, and that can be best accomplished through having kids listen to, to teachers, to an expert reader, reading aloud from books, from texts that they don't have the decoding ability to read yet themselves. But kids' listening comprehension exceeds their reading comprehension really for quite a long time, on average through middle school. So it's really important for kids to hear that written language, which is often quite different from spoken language, and that is part, that should be considered part of learning to read. When we were doing this, the the five portions of reading, phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension, that it's it's an ongoing kind of thing. And, and I know there's pushback uh, out there, like uh, systematic phonics instruction, uh, which you do talk about in, in the book, that is really extremely important. And, and you, I think you hit the nail on the head, because if, if kids are exposed to a lot of words and they're able to memorize the words, and they're still not able to, in, in higher level reading, to be able to pronounce or to be able to systematically figure out how to pronounce the word, they're, they're really at a loss for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it takes up a lot of your brain power, your cognitive capacity. If, if you're, you know, maybe you've got the basics of decoding even, but if you're not fluent, if you can't do it pretty automatically, then you're going to be expending a lot of brain power on just figuring out what is this word, how is it pronounced, and you don't have very much left over for understanding the meaning. So this, these things all do work together. It's very, you know, reading is, as somebody has said, is, is rocket science. It's, it's very complex. Complex, yes. And, um, you know what, the, you mentioned those five pillars of, of early literacy that, have, that were identified actually by a report that came out in, I think, the year 2000, the National Reading Panel Report. It was a panel of blue-ribbon experts. And interestingly, so that they... You know, that, that report has had some unintended consequences, I would say. Um, it was mostly focused on the phonic side of things and de- what are called foundational skills, which include phonemic awareness and, and phonics. And then fluency is, is sort of the bridge between decoding and comprehension. That The phonics recommendations um, that came out in 2000 were resisted in large parts of the education world that didn't agree with the idea that you need to teach systematic phonics to get kids to decode well. The comprehension part of that report seemed to say, um, well, for comprehension, all you really need to do is teach comprehension skills and strategies. 
it's not really what they meant, but they did omit to mention the, the important role of knowledge and comprehension. And, and that part of the report, which kind of fit with what teachers and ed, schools of education were already doing, because they already kind of believed in comprehension skills and strategies, that was really enthusiastically embraced and has led to the idea that, which is kind of a dangerous idea, that, oh, well, this is, it's got the imprimatur of science now. All we need to do for comprehension is teach comprehension skills and strategies. And there's a big difference even between what that report found evidence for in terms of teaching comprehension strategies and what actually goes on in our classrooms. And, and just one example of that is the studies that they relied on to say, yes, teaching comprehension strategies works. Those studies lasted no more than six weeks. But we teach these skills and strategies, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year. Um, there's no evidence that that's going to work. Now, you brought up an interesting point that I've always wondered with the petri dish of the experimentation in the field of education, because it seems like the American public school system, this is, again, my personal opinion, has been the great petri dish of experimentation going way, way back, trying to improve things, trying to make things sharper and better, but at, at the expense of many times students uh, not learning and not being able to master skills and not being able to read, not being able to write, which you do talk about writing. And so yeah. things change. And then after 20 years, something else comes out. Somebody else puts their name on it. They're making their millions of dollars. And you see, if you've been in the business long enough, you see these things come around. They've just been retooled. They've been tweaked a little bit, but it's, it's the same thing. So my question is, what interest have you gotten from university and college education professors? Because... In the public education field, we've always wondered, you know, we get this crop of new educators coming out, very excited, and yet, they my words now, they have to be indoctrinated with the system's uh, philosophy and materials rather than taking the latest in brain-based research and cognitive thinking, like you've discussed here a little bit, and really implement these things and try to change. Have you had conversations with university uh, professors about this? Well, not many, a, a couple, and, and there are some people at schools of education who are interested in bringing, I mean, it, it sounds weird to say this, like that this should already be the case, bringing teacher training in line with what scientists have actually found about how people learn. Yes, thank you. Um, I would say the very beginnings of a movement towards that, uh, and I want to, that, that may be my next big project is to look into that more, but... Um, really, you know, this is a long-standing problem. There's this real gulf between what goes on in teacher in, in ed schools and teacher training and the rest of academia, um, and it has. There are historical factors for that. Schools of education, many of them started out really not as part of a university, but what were called normal schools in the 19th century, mm -hmm. maybe early 20th century, which were, were just designed to, um, to produce teachers who could teach the basics, just, you know, through eighth grade, reading, writing, arithmetic. And they would take 
mostly young women or really girls straight out of eighth grade. And those normal schools became state colleges of education, but they've always had traditionally most have had lower standards of admission and and I think um, ed schools have felt maybe sometimes kind of a, a chip on their shoulder about being looked down upon by the rest of academia. In, in any event, different cultures have evolved in ed schools and say like departments of psychology and so you can have very different things being taught in an ed school psychology, developmental psychology course and the same course in the Department of psychology on the other side of campus, there's really very, been very little communication. Um, so that's, you know, it, why one reason certainly that teacher, train, teacher trainees are not learning about the, things like the importance of knowledge in, or of building knowledge in comprehension. They may learn it's a good idea to activate prior knowledge, but that doesn't, what if the kids don't have any prior knowledge to activate? There's, they don't, they don't hear about what to do in that situation. And, uh, I mean, there are a whole bunch of problems, which you may be more aware of than I am uh, with teacher training, but certainly the, the disconnect between what they're telling. I mean, sometimes it's not just that they aren't telling teachers about the recent findings of cognitive science. They're telling teacher trainees things that actually conflict with the recent findings of cognitive science. Which is really surprising to me to know that, Things are flying in the face of, of proven research that's gone on for years and years and years, and it, it has been ignored. It's been siloed. I, I often refer to what happens many times at in uh, at universities is it, everybody is in their silo, and there's there's no connector between the silos, like like grain silos many times connect. There's no interaction. There's no sharing of information or sharing of uh, recent research to illuminate and and help that. A, a question we've got about uh, maybe uh, five minutes before the break, but a question that relates to uh, literacy in many popular kinds of programs that are used in public schools and even in maybe even in uh, charters and private schools is balanced literacy and even the writing workshop because I'm kind of transitioning I want I want to really focus in on on the knowledge uh, aspect and the content aspect and and some of the stories that you have to enlighten listeners about how this really is a very powerful tool Talk a little bit about balanced literacy and Lucy Calkins and how, what strengths and and not so strong kinds of things come out of that. I'm not trying to diss Lucy Calkins in this, but there are some weaknesses to that approach. Yeah, well, this goes back, I mean, to the the reading wars, as they were called, of the of the 1990s, and the the two camps were those who advocated systematic instruction in phonics, and then there was on the other side a movement that was called whole language, which really took the position that kids didn't need to learn, be, really be taught explicitly how to read, that they you just surrounded them with good children's literature and gave them a lot of time to read, that they would essentially pick it up. And that came under fire uh, when test scores were plummeting. And supposed compromise between phonics and, and whole language was what has come to be called balanced literacy. And it, it was supposed to incorporate the best of whole language, sort of high-quality children's literature, and the best of, of phonics. Um, but really, 
I mean, and balanced literacy is a very slippery term. It means different things to different people. But one of the leaders of that movement um, has, many of the leaders of that movement really came out of whole language, including uh, Lucy Calkins, who is at the Teachers College at Columbia University and is a a very well-known sort of literacy guru with a large following. I think that uh, she and others have really incorporated a lot of what was the problem with whole language into balanced literacy. Um, and on the, on the decoding side, yes, there's more attention paid to phonics, but simultaneously there are other things going on that teachers are encouraged to do that kind of undermine the phonics instruction, like encouraging kids to just look at the picture and guess what the word is. And that's a lot easier than trying to sound it out. On the comprehension side, balanced literacy, and this is not part of whole language, but balanced literacy has become very much identified with this teaching of comprehension skills and strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know we're going to need to break soon, but I, I should also mention, and I can talk about this more, part of that is having kids read books at their individual reading levels, right. um, which Leveled. are determined by testing and, and could be years below their grade level. We've been talking to Natalie Wexler. She is the author of the Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. She is another author of a book on writing and uh, really has delved into this whole topic, uh, The Writing Revolution, and uh, you co-authored that with uh, Judith Hockman. So, folks, I want you to stay tuned to our our second half on this because what we're going to do, I want to get into the content portion of this. There's uh, interesting aspects about curriculum and then, uh, Natalie, at the end here, when we before we uh, close out, the whole COVID-19 situation has changed education dramatically and may change it in the fall. So how this is going to impact and what parents can do, what teachers can do in their approaches, and how administrators can really focus on uh, keeping content out in the forefront rather than the process. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We've been talking to Natalie Wexler. She's the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Sounds like you've got all the answers, and I know that's not what you intended with that title, and I know people will look at that and they'll go, wow, she's really got it figured out here in about 250 pages where, uh, you know, we've all been struggling with this. Can I add to that, too? Uh, Let me add to that, too. Natalie, it sounds like you really have done uh, a lot of due diligence, and just from listening to you in the last 30 minutes, it's just eye-opening for me, but it seems like you really are on to something here. Uh, It really seems like it's going to be a very complicated and a hard road to go down, and I guess the question I would have is, how do we take what you're talking about and get it into the schools and maybe change the mindset of some of those teachers and, and administrative staffs and, and, and school, board, uh, school boards to, to, to go in this direction even? It, it almost seems like everyone's going in their own separate direction, and we're not, we're not taking the science that you're talking about here and putting it all together and, and all of us marching in the same direction. It's just, mm. I mean, there's so many other issues, too. But Well, boy. I will say, I mean, there are bright spots, and I'll, I'll, I'm happy to talk about what, what is happening, what can be done. Um, I do want to just say I don't want to make it sound like I came up with this 
all by myself that, that I discovered this problem because um, the people have been talking about this problem for 30 years. Right. And um, really, um, E.D. Hirsch, who, whose name may be familiar to some, I wrote a book in, that was published in 1987 called Cultural Literacy that really is, was saying a lot of what I'm saying now, but it was for complicated reasons that I talk about in the book. It was kind of misinterpreted and... Um, and, and actually, it came out really just before a lot of this cognitive science research came out, sort of backing up what, what Hirsch was saying. And I would say that um, things have gotten even worse, certainly, since 1987. Um, it's not that oh, yeah. testing created this problem, but testing has certainly, high stakes testing has certainly exacerbated it. Um, as far as, like, what what can be done, I mean, that there are people reading, not just reading my book, I think the book is helping, but, but even before the book came out, there were people starting to act on, to recognize this problem and act on it. And the reason I wrote the book, one reason I, I should say is that even though there were people talking about this and had been talking about this for a while and, and writing about it, uh, nobody had really written a kind of narrative journalistic account that, um, you know, I, it would tell stories and I hope I was hoping would grab some public attention and would be accessible for a lot of people. You know, part of the book is like, where, where can we go from here? Um, here's the problem. Here's how it came about. And what, what can we do next? And the first step, not the only step, but the, the first step in addressing this problem is for elementary schools or, or, or districts to adopt a literacy curriculum that actually focuses on building kids' knowledge instead of on these, you know, the skill of the week, uh, finding the main idea or uh, determining the author's purpose or whatever. It was until about five, six years ago, that was the only kind of elementary literacy curriculum you could buy. The other didn't, a content-focused curriculum didn't exist. I mean, there was supposedly content in the school day in terms of social studies and science, but that's been just, that has disappeared for quite a while ago. And so there are now six or eight elementary literacy curricula out there that do focus on topics. You know, they'll bring in topics in history and science and the arts and not just the skills. And they'll spend at least a couple of weeks on a topic because what you've got now is, well, there may be some nonfiction. There may be, certainly there's, you know, content. But the teacher will read about clouds one day and zebras the next and the kids will be reading about all sorts of different things. And that doesn't give kids an opportunity to really absorb and retain any of that information and vocabulary um, and, and to get it into their long-term memories. So adopting a curriculum is the first thing, and they're, you know, they cover different bodies of knowledge in different ways. Some of them will be better for some districts and some for others. But the, then that's not, that's not the only thing you need to do, because this especially for elementary school teachers, this is a very different way of teaching from what they've been trained to do. So they're going to need some help, some support, some coaching, et cetera, to, um, to adapt. Different teachers, you know, some will take to it like a duck to water, but some are going to need some help in, in figuring out how to do this. So it's not going to be an overnight transformation, but I will say there are places in this country that have been using these kinds of curricula for several years now. There's some districts in Tennessee that I've been to. There's, there's some in Louisiana. There scattered around the country, still a relative handful, but uh, I have visited some of them, and, and, you know, the stories I've heard have been incredibly encouraging. Teachers 
they may have an initial period of adjustment, but many of them say, this is so much better. I would never go back to what I was doing before. And my kids are doing things I never thought they were capable of, and they're really loving it. They really prefer this. So um, there, there is hope on the horizon, I would say. Because you even talk about how uh, students who struggle with learning, not reading leveled books, in other words, reading books that are above their their capability, when they are prompted with some of the right kinds of questioning, are able to struggle through some things. And, and what it does is create a level playing field. Because I, mean, I want to make a transition here, you know, kind of answer that, but make a transition from reading to writing, because you state if, it may be tough to read about a topic you don't know well, but, if you, but it can be done. If you're asked to write about it, you'll struggle to produce anything coherent. So the linkage between reading and writing through a knowledge-building kind of curriculum is really critical. Yeah, and writing has been really overlooked uh, in schools, in teacher training. Teachers don't get training, by and large, in, in teaching writing. Um, and kids are kind of expected to just pick it up. And part of the balanced literacy movement, and, and Lucy Calkins, has been, who we mentioned earlier, has been very prominent in this, has was been this movement over the last 20 or 30 years to have kids at the elementary level just write personal narratives about their own experiences, which, you know, is kind of appealing. Kids like to write about themselves, but it has a couple of problems. One is that that doesn't really equip them to do the kind of writing they're going to be expected to do in high school and beyond, sort of more expository or analytical writing. And secondly, it really wastes a huge opportunity to to use writing to build knowledge. I think we all understand, as you said, that, you know, you can't write about something you don't know about. And that's one reason kids have been writing about their personal experiences, because it, they're not learning enough about any one topic in our current elementary school system in order to be able to write coherently about it. So what do they know about? They know about their personal experience, so they'll write about their trip to the amusement park. But the other thing that's not so obvious, maybe, is that in the process of writing about a topic, we actually learn about it much more, learn more, we have to really think about it, we have to analyze it, and we're much more likely to retain that information once we've written about it and put it in our own words. So, so writing can be a really powerful way to, to build knowledge. The problem is that it is so hard to do. It's, it's much harder than reading, um, and it's, it's probably, I would say it's the hardest thing we ask kids to do in school. Hmm. And one of the other problems with the really not just balanced literacy, but, but sort of the standard approach is um, to ask kids to just write at length pretty much from the beginning. Uh, and the theory is, you know, they'll develop fluency and stamina, but it's really hard for second graders or first graders to even write a sentence sometimes, let alone, you know, several pages. It's so difficult that they probably are not going to ever learn to write really well, many of them, because you know, they, they need more explicit instruction. But they also may be, have trouble focusing on the content because there's so much else that, that is they're having to juggle about, you know, how do I spell this word and what word should I even use and how do I connect this sentence to that sentence. So um, the key to using writing as a way to build knowledge is to make it easier, modulate that cognitive load by starting at the sentence level. And, and that can be true for kids in high school, too. It's not just for kids in elementary school, because there are a lot of kids in high school who really have not learned the, the skills that enable you to be a good writer. So that's what the writing revolution method, which I did not 
create that my co-author Judith Hockman did, and she's a veteran educator. And, and, and so the, the two hallmarks of that method, which I don't know of any other method that combines these things, is the writing instruction is grounded in whatever content you're trying to teach, social studies, math, as well as English, anything. And you begin at the sentence level, um, if that's what students need. You know, and that made perfect sense to me when I read that. You know, you can't have a, a student do a persuasive letter or a, or write an editorial or a letter to the editor or uh, a, a thesis kind of thing if they don't really know the content very well. I thought how you lay that out was very intriguing to me, and uh, it made a lot of sense. And when things make sense like that, it's... It's like, where has this been? Why haven't we thought about this sooner? Why aren't we doing this more now, just like Mark was saying? A lot of wasted time. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And the whole cognitive science movement and, and really the grounding of that uh, cognitive science is, is really recently just you know, coming on the scene. And I think we need to pay a whole lot more attention to that, especially in the education field. I think I have glossed over something, and I'm assuming people will understand what we're talking about exactly by knowledge-building curriculum. Can you expand Mm -hmm. on that a little bit? Because I don't want to give people the wrong impression or lead them down a road that it is not. Explain what a knowledge-building curriculum is. Right. Okay. So, well, I think, you know, I certainly assumed, and I think many people assumed that 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 all curricula are built. Why wouldn't they be building knowledge? Like, what else is there to do in school? You're supposed to be learning stuff. Um, so I think I should backtrack and just describe what the standard elementary literacy curriculum looks like. And I, I sort of alluded to it, but you might be a, a textbook, they're often called basal readers, that just has a, a bunch of largely sort of not well-connected reading passages, and each unit is organized, like each week maybe, is there's a certain skill that's being focused on, like sequence of events. And so the the reading passages or the text there will be chosen really not for what they're about, but for how well they seem to lend themselves to demonstrating how to find, how to determine the sequence of events or how to compare and contrast or whatever. Um, and all of the questions and the, 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 the teacher is supposed to ask of the students will be directed at that, at getting them to learn that skill. And the content will kind of be glossed over. So if you, it, and this is true even if you're not using one of these textbooks, there are a lot of classrooms that just use sort of commercially available children's books. But again, the teacher will choose one to demonstrate, that you could use to demonstrate the skill. So you might read a book about, say, whales, but then rather than leading a discussion about whales or asking kids, so, like, what do whales eat or whatever, you would say, so if the skill is determining author's purpose, you might say, so what was the author's purpose in writing about whales? Was it to entertain, to inform, or to persuade? Those are the three choices. So that's the standard approach, um, and that goes on year after year. The not, a knowledge-building curriculum, by contrast, is going to have a unit maybe on the human digestive system or astronomy or, you know, the Civil War, um, and, and it ideally builds sort of logically. So if you're reading about the Civil War, you already know something about American history before the Civil War. Because knowledge building is a gradual, cumulative process, and it works best if there's a curriculum that kind of spirals, that introduces 
you know, one ancient civilization in kindergarten and then comes back to another ancient civilization in first grade. And some of the vocabulary will be repeated and the kids will already know something about what does it mean to be an ancient civilization. So that's what those knowledge, that's what I mean by knowledge building curriculum. And when you look at the disparity in communities or in cities, uh, maybe even in, in school districts in, in different kinds of regions of the of the school district where one portion of a school district may be less affluent, another portion may be uh-huh. more affluent. And uh, if they're not getting what we've talked about, a knowledge-building kind of curriculum, that knowledge in, an, in a more affluent kind of area can be done at home, or, or it can be supplemented at home. It would be supplemented through activities or places they would go. And when you're going, uh, a student who is in a, a lower socioeconomic area, there may be a single parent, there may be multiple children, the, the student going home may be taking care of other children, may be cooking a meal. Uh, and the opportunity or the access to getting additional information to build that knowledge may not be available or may not be important at that time because life skills right. are important at that time. Is that, is that some of the right. things? Are those, go ahead. Well, I, I would say also, and, and this you know, comes from observing, I ob- observed a couple of classes through, this, through a school year, one using the, for the book, uh, one using the sort of standard comprehension skills approach and the other using one of these newer curricula. And I've talked to a lot of, of teachers who have taught, you know, in various kinds of schools. Um, but one thing that I've heard over and over again is that, yes, we, we do have these disparities in what kids bring with them to school. And, you know, school is really supposed to equalize things, but instead we've been reinforcing those disparities, those inequities, by limiting kids who come in with less knowledge to simpler books, simpler concepts, and simpler vocabulary. And it's really a system of tracking that begins in kindergarten. But with the the teachers who have started using knowledge-building curricula have told me that those curricula really level the playing field because it's giving all kids access to the same content, the same information, and the kids who are are picking up a lot of knowledge at home, they're thriving. They, they love learning about, you know, Greek gods and goddesses. But who, the kids who really blossom are the kids who have not maybe picked up as much knowledge at home, who are the quote-unquote lower-achieving kids. And often it's those kids, teachers tell me, and I had, was just talking to one this, earlier this week who was saying this, they're often the ones who make the most valuable contributions to class discussions. It's not that they're not smart. It's that they may not be as good at decoding or they may not have the background knowledge from home, but you give them that knowledge and you read aloud to them from books and lead discussions and they really blossom. You know, I have found your book extremely refreshing, Natalie. It's been uh, an encouragement to me. It's been a reinforcement of some things. It's it's also kind of slapped my hand a couple times when we have done some things that maybe we shouldn't have done or approached them in, in a different way. I, I want to emphasize and ask you this question, the importance of leadership in supporting, advocating, and uh, through financial and other kinds of resources to make this work. It seems in the course of my career that many times when leadership changes, things are thrown out, new things are brought in, 
you have to retool, and then that person again in three or four years leaves and something else comes on. What is the importance of leadership right. in education, especially at a, oh. at a school district? I mean, it is, it's hugely important. I think this has to be a multi-pronged effort. I mean, it cannot just be top-down because if teachers don't understand why they're being asked to do some new thing, and they're asked to do some new thing all the time, and they're not necessarily told why, you know, they can do what teachers have traditionally done, which is they can close the classroom door and do whatever makes sense to them. Amen. So Amen. You, have to, you have to get the teachers on board, but teachers are not in a position to enact themselves this kind of systemic change that's necessary. And so you need a a building leader, a principal, an administration that understands why this is important. And so you don't have the principal coming in and saying, I want to see the skill of the week on the board. And then there's principal turnover, too. So you also need support from the central office, from the top of the the district. The whole district has adopted this curriculum, which is probably ideal. um, Because when, you know, I've been in schools where a principal came in and brought in a knowledge-building curriculum and then another principal came in, and we went and said, "No, no, we're doing what I'm used to." And the you know, I've I've been in one supply room where there were just all of these wonderful materials still in their shrink wrap because the oh. principal had said, "No, we're not doing that anymore." So really, you need to have sort of everybody on board. I want to mention that your your website it's nataliewexler.com and uh, folks Natalie's going to be in a virtual symposium next week Thursday May 21st from uh, 11 o'clock to 4 p.m. Central Time and uh, you can sign up on her website again it's uh, nataliewexler.com and that particular uh, aspect that I was looking at is on the left-hand side uh, in the first column Natalie, how do you see the changes with COVID-19 and adjusting to teachers doing remote learning with with students and parents becoming more involved in their child's education? How do you see what you've been talking about here uh, impact that? And how is COVID-19 going to impact what the book's talking about? Yeah, well, I am very concerned about that because it's clear that there are a lot of kids out there who are getting little or no instruction, even instruction in comprehension skills, um, because they don't have access to the internet or, or there's not enough adult yep. support or whatever. And, you know, as I've said, the, the roots of the knowledge gap are like what kids are able to pick up at home from their parents, and it's very much dependent in, on parents' resources and level of education. And we now have kids at home 24-7, so those differences are being exacerbated. The kids you know, with highly educated parents, I mean, maybe they're not being taken on trips to Europe or to museums, but they're, they may be engaging in conversations with their parents. Their parents may be taking them on nature walks and, and, and sharing the knowledge that they have. So I do think that this knowledge gap is li- likely growing right now. And um, if schools, when they do return to something like normal, if they continue to do what m- almost all have been doing, which is you know, they're going to assess learning loss through measures that really look at these comprehension skills. And so they'll, they'll give kids passages to read that may include a lot of but not vocabulary that they don't have, and then they're going to assign them a reading level on the basis of that and tell them to go off and practice their skills. And this, there's no evidence that that works. It's what we've been doing for decades. And I have seen calls for us to, to 
just double down on that when, when schools are back in session. And that, I think, will risks only making a really horrific situation even worse. I think it's more important than ever. And I know this may be, sound difficult in a time when, you know, people are just struggling to keep their heads above water, but um, I think now is the time for more schools to adopt these knowledge-building curricula that I've been talking about and really start giving kids access to the, the information and knowledge they need. You know, I was going to ask you for a closing comment, but that sums it up. I, in, in a time when kids need to really progress, when things have become more complicated, this becomes more important. And uh, folks, if you are interested in what Natalie's talking about, go to Natalie Wexler, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-W-E-X-L-E-R.com, NatalieWexler.com. The book is called The Knowledge Gap. The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Natalie, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been very enlightening and encouraging, and uh, kudos to you for stepping out and getting this information out to the general public. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Arnold, and I, I really appreciate your having me on and the opportunity to spread the word. 